Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. What's up, DTC pod? Today, we're joined by Jasmine Garnsworthy, who is a former fashion and beauty editor. She's also founder of The Buff and creator of Female Founders World. So Jasmine, why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about some of the projects you've been you've been involved in, a little bit about of the background about yourself and uh, what your involvement is in the space. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, okay, so I'll kick off, I guess, with my experience in editorial. I was like you said, a fashion and beauty editor for years. I was the fashion editor at Pop Sugar in Australia and then moved over to New York with Stylecaster and was really covering everything from like fashion and beauty, pop culture, interviewing celebrities, all of that stuff and pumping out a lot of content every single day um, and speaking with a lot of women-owned businesses, just the nature of the, of the kind of stories that we were writing meant that I was interviewing a lot of female founders. So really got embedded in that space through that role and then in 20, like end of 2016, early 2017, this is kind of like, I think Glossier is like two, two years old, a year and a half old. And there was a lot of excitement around D2C in the beauty space um, at that time. And I'd been seeing a lot of customization starting to happen. And so really got this idea for a clean beauty brand that had a customization element and um, started it, you know, from home. I did a course with a platform called Formula Botanica to learn how to formulate and really came to it from like a beauty editor's eye and um, really focusing on press and influencers and uh, built the business kind of that way. And this is, you know, before there were platforms where you could like just whip up a quiz, you know, we had to work with the developer to build out a full sophisticated quiz platform. And in hindsight, we should have just you know, built the quiz technology for other people to use. That would have been a way more successful business. Um, and then in the end, uh, ended up closing that business during the pandemic. And that whole experience led me to create Female Founder World, which is where I am today. Um, no, that's that's really cool. And it's it's really cool to hear kind of the, the evolution of your time in the space. So like going from um, you know, the editor, the editorial side of things to the founder side of things all the way to where you are now with Female Founder World. Um, one thing, just a, a quick side note, have you talked to, um, do you know Paul at, at Pros at all? Because they do custom hair care. Are you familiar with the brand? I am very familiar with the brand, but I haven't, you know, I haven't connected with him personally, but yes, I know exactly what they're about. I think they're one of the really early ones that probably inspired the skincare concept. Yeah, I, I just think it's uh, I we, we had him on the podcast, um, you know, a, a week or two ago, and it was just really interesting to talk about customization at scale to because to pull off one of those businesses, obviously, it's a really good uh, it's a great concept. But like the operational side of like customizing all sorts of products and nailing that is probably the hard part. Uh, so what oh, yes. 
<laughs> so what, what, what were some of the challenges that you ran into? Because obviously from a concept um, side of you, that was good. It sounds like you were like, okay, we're going to develop the site. We're going to be able to pull in all this information. But what were some of the complexities and challenges? Because building a customized skincare solution, it's not the same as just, you know, creating one different product and selling it that way, right? There's a whole lot more that's going to go on in the background. So what were some of the challenges that you ran into? Yeah. Um, so you, you've nailed it there with the, I guess, how difficult the fulfillment process is and the operations of a business like that are just overly complicated. Um, so that was obviously a huge challenge. And then I guess for me as well, like I was coming to this very much from um, an editorial background. And so I had this like great eye for branding. I knew how to build community. I knew how to, I knew from the product side what worked, but I hadn't really built a business before. And I think that I was coming into it with not, I think a lot of people build a business in, in kind of the skill set that they already have. So they'll start an agency or they'll freelance and then build an agency and then scale. And then once they know how to build a business, they can go into consumer or a different space. And I think that there were just too many gaps for me to fill. I was 25 or 26 at the time. And, you know, even though we had distribution at, you know, Forever 21 and Urban Outfitters and e-com was doing really well, I just didn't have the business expertise. And I can say that now, you know, years later, um, but at the time I, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I think that it was, yes, the complexities of, of, of the operations of that business, but also just my own shortcomings as someone who didn't have that business experience yet. Yeah. And I think that's something really important to think about when you're starting a company, right? It happened to me. I got like the first company I started, I kind of got dumbed into it and it, it wasn't by choice. It was like, oh, I woke up one day and was thinking, oh my God, this is a really hard business to build. Yeah. Like, what have I got myself into? Um, so, but again, all those, it, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Um, but I guess uh, one thing that is very unique about your perspective is the fact that going into starting that business, you did have the background in editorial. You did have probably the connections to be able to spin up the business. You had the expertise on the branding side of what the consumer wants, the community. So let's kind of, before we go back to um, the buff, I kind of want to just dig in a little bit more um, along the lines of what your experience had been in the editorial space, right? How is What was the space like when you had started? How did it evolve? I know I saw you were also the lead editor for Pop Sugar. We had Brian on recently and he was like a super um, smart guy talking about exactly how that thing just absolutely took off. So um, we just love to hear about, um, you know, the skill set that you had that got you into this editorial space in the first place and what the, like, what the skill sets that you had and what your what your job was really. Yeah. So I, I always thought I was going to be like a magazine editor. This is, you know, 2011, 2012, when I was like at uni or college for the Americans. And I thought I'd be a magazine editor. There, wa there wasn't digital publishing in Australia. I didn't, no one was really taking it seriously. If you went to for example, like vogue.com.au, it was a corporate website with like a media kit. It wasn't somewhere where they were publishing fashion stories. So it was really, really early days. And I started off actually doing copywriting for an online store. I really enjoyed writing. I wanted to be like a features editor at a magazine. And uh, just from there was offered a role with a site called Mamma Mia. And if there's anyone who's Australian, they know what this publication is. It's now the biggest women's digital um publisher and media network in Australia. They're rivaling some of like the 
and they're independent. They're rivaling some of the really, really big names. Um, but at the time it was six people and, and a blog and we were just kind of figuring it out and they were trying to start an online store. And so we were kind of figuring out what's content and commerce look like together. And this is 2012, like no one, especially in Australia was doing that. And so it was this really interesting experience of at the time, digital publishing as an industry was the wild west. It was really, really new. And I think it really spoke to both my entrepreneurial scrappy side and also this love for writing and content creation. Uh, and then obviously the industry matured so much and, and it's changed so much. Um, I ended up moving over to New York where digital publishing was much more established, obviously, and, and everyone was doing it over here um, and working for a bigger um, publication. I'm sorry, in the middle of those two things, I was at Pop Sugar in, in Australia as well and getting kind of exposure to what was happening over the in the US in terms of digital publishing. And it was very quickly kind of, I was very quickly realizing that even though maybe the industry wasn't being recognized in the same way by, for example, like publicists, if you go to Fashion Week and you work for a digital publication, you were standing in the back row, you know, that was, I, I remember the first time I saw a blogger at Fashion Week, it was a totally, totally different time. And so really watch this evolution from anyone writing online being a blogger and most women writing online being mummy bloggers to then this evolution of influencers and the whole space completely changing. So I it, I could talk about this with the whole podcast because it is just the most incredible transformation. Well, yeah, and it's so wild because I feel like what you're saying is like when you got into the space, that was when media, it was like run totally differently. Like you have your publications, you have your magazines, you have all this sort of stuff. They did probably have a digital outfit, but it hadn't quite transitioned to the like blogosphere where it's all about new content all the time, um, you know, clicks and, and all that sort of stuff. So that kind of happened, that transformation happened pretty quickly where the whole, you know, the whole revenue models got kind of upended and turned on their heads where it was now all about fast content. Um, you know, copy became really important. How do you get people drawn in? And it was less about, I mean, obviously editorial becomes important, but it's more about like, how can you hook and keep attention and then use that as like the carrot to get people like into the rest of your content, right? Yeah. And, and at the time, so when I was at, when I was at Pop Sugar, I was producing 10 stories a day and 10, that's 10 stories where I'm researching, getting original quotes, writing, uploading it, doing the SEO, and then also doing the social content to support it as well. 10 a day. So that's more than an hourly deadline. So when you talk about the the pace, uh, you know, the pace of change and kind of realizing that volume of content was just as important as quality of content, maybe even more so, that definitely happened really quickly. Wow, ten a ten a day—that's insane! I can't even I imagine. They don't do like, that anymore. How how are you do, <laughs> how are you managing that? That's a, that's an absolute insane amount of content. You just honestly get so so fast. Like you just think more quickly. You spot trends quickly. You learn how to make decisions really quickly, and you've become a really fast typer. So, Jasmine, the next question that I have for you is: having spent so much time in the editorial space, uh, one thing that I think is really interesting, and we see all the time, is this relationship between fashion writers, PR, and brands. And it's like this dance between where people are trying to get press, they're trying to build brand, do it the right way. So, I think you obviously have a pretty unique perspective being on the editorial side of things, right? So, could you talk to us a little bit about um, how brands, you know, what 
what you're seeing in terms of things like what role does PR play? Um, how do brands relate with the editorial side? And what is, you know, how important are they, like, what's the importance that they're placing on the, the types of content that you're putting out for them? Yeah, I think I think the um, the first thing to mention when talking about this is thinking about how you shop yourself for anything. And maybe you did discover it on TikTok, but then you Google it and you want to establish that there's some credibility there and you see that they were mentioned in Allure's Roundup of the Best New Beauty Products. And so you're like, oh, okay, back my mind, interesting. And then you see it on your friend's Instagram story a few days later and then maybe that's where you click through to buy. So I do think that even though the process has changed. You can't eliminate how important that press coverage is, even if maybe you're not able to directly say that the sales have come from the press. The other thing that I hear a lot, and this is from um, both founders that I have or brands that I have covered, but also founders that are, are in the female founder world community, the way that they think about press is that getting those like really big kind of like mastheads in the early days is really integral for lining up bigger brand partnerships down the track. And then also with retailers. So we know that buyers, category managers, if you're looking for an omni-channel approach, like they are reading those roundups to try and discover new brands. They're listening as well to podcasts like this one and like our podcast to discover new brands and you really need to have that coverage if you want to be able to get those kind of like industry ins as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and what it really comes down to, it's like brand marketing versus performance marketing, right? Like a brand is when someone has trust to be able to make a purchase. They already have like the inception. They're like, oh, this could be kind of cool. And then when they actually go to like make the purchase, there's nothing that's going to shut them down for making it. Actually, they'll probably be encouraged by what they find, whether it's Google um, or anything else. And I think it's so what's so funny about like humans and how people think and make buying uh, decisions and everything like that is like, um, there are all these little things that have such big effects on the way people consume and purchase, right? Um, this is like kind of an unrelated example, but I, I remember listening or reading somewhere, um, there was like a scientific study done about like Google and you know, the suggested, um, the suggested searches when you type something into Google. So like those, uh, those, whatever is being suggested by Google, it has no way of being like really tracked but it has like a massive impact on the way people perceive things. So Interesting. it's, yeah. So it's actually called, um, it's like ephemeral sort of like messaging, marketing, whatever you want to call it. And there's a lot of investigation being done into it. Like right now is like, Oh, is this actually okay? The way, cause it's not like you can really track like what Google is telling you when it's a screen that just disappears. But like, it's like the same thing. If you go to Google and you see your brand, you're like, Oh, okay. It's legit. This is something I can trust. Um, and it's almost like in that subliminal sort of reinforcing um, sort of side of things. So I think that's a really good perspective. And for brands that are like listening and why media is important and why that should be part of their strategy is, you know, you're going to have your performance on one side of the equation. But when it comes to all these different things that play into your growth strategy, you're going to need um, you're going to you're going to need that the reputation and the credibility and the trust that the the editorial is going to build out for you. Totally. And I'm I'm obviously biased. You know, I've worked in media. This is my background. I'm a branding gal. Like this is my thing, but I've seen it again and again with the brands that have real longevity. They have invested in that brand marketing and they have invested in that press and those relationships with journalists. And that is what sees them through to be a, you know, a long-term brand rather than like a flash in the pan. So I do think that it is worthwhile.
And then, so while you were, while you were in that sort of role, right, I'm sure you were getting tons of pitches and communication, right, about my story, do this, do that. So what did it, like, how were you evaluating what to write about? Um, what was a good story for you? What did you cover? Did you have relationships set up where you would know, where, where people would know exactly kind of what you were looking about to play stories with you? Or how, how did it work from your side of the equation? So I'll, I'll try and frame this from um, something that'll be useful for people who are building consumer businesses and maybe they want to be getting that press coverage. I, as an editor and as a, I'm still getting pitches because now I have my own media platform, I'm receiving hundreds of pitches every day, like hundreds of emails are coming through. The one, sometimes I'll scan through. If I ever receive an email that isn't uh, personalized, doesn't have my name, doesn't have either a direct reference to something I've written or doesn't have a direct reference to a content tentpole that I'm revisiting in my um, in my content all the time, I usually disregard it. The emails that I'm always going to read are from a someone that I know. And that's why having a publicist with a really great relationship with press is so important. And when you're paying for a PR agency, you're not necessarily because you're thinking I can pitch this like I can I can figure out how to write a press release super easy yes you can but what you can't do is fake the relationship with the editor who has been on a press trip to Miami with this journalist before and who has invested tens of thousands of dollars in getting to know this person and who can guarantee that their email will, will get opened and so I think that's really 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 important you need to you need to really think about what's going to make the person open the email and that relationship is everything and I also think that even just interacting with an editor on social media so if I've seen a brand on Instagram or if I'd seen them, TikTok didn't exist when I was um, working for like Pop Sugar and Stylecaster. But if I'd, if I'd already known them or I'd, I'd connected with them and I saw the name in my inbox, again, I'd think, huh, interesting. I'm seeing that everywhere. I'll read this. And so actually having that connection with an editor through social media or LinkedIn or whatever is actually like pretty valuable too. Yeah, I think that's a really important lens to look at it through is the relationship side of things, right? Because um, and I see this all the time, but you can get email, like the fact that you could get an email and being like, you won a thousand dollars, right? And you're never going to, you're, you're never, you're going to be like, oh my God, that throw it in the trash, right? Like someone could yeah, literally yeah. be sending you an email being like, Hey Jasmine, I'm giving you a thousand dollars. All you have to do is respond to this email and you wouldn't totally. respond. <laughs> but if it came, if it came from like a friend, you would be like, okay, like I, I'm going to listen. Um, so I think that is, that's so important in terms of just speeding up the process. And also it's a two-way street, right? I'm sure that by having relationships developed with different publicists, they're, they're not going to hit you up every sing with, with a bunch of crap. Otherwise you're going to just ignore them. Right. So it's on them to also have a filter with what gets passed on to you. So it's, it's a nice, like, healthy two-way relationship and it also it's going to just speed up efficiency make it easier for you you know you're getting good stories delivered all you have to do is listen to the right publicist right yeah 100 percent. there are definitely names in my inbox where i don't open the email because i know it's going to be trash i know that they haven't tailored it to me i know that they haven't <laughs> they don't read what i write you know what i mean but and then there are names where i know that everything they send me is going to be hyper curated it's going to be really interesting even if it's not the right fit I'm going to do them the courtesy of responding and giving them some feedback to give to their client. Okay, and then moving on. So you were doing, you were, you were obviously doing that. The next topic I wanna to talk about is the kind of evolution in terms of the content. So like way back in the day, 
we were in magazine world where it's really long form content. They have like one magazine they're publishing. Then we move into the blogosphere where it's all about content, content, content. Jasmine's writing 10 pieces a day. And now you've seen like an, an evolution in content where now we're like, it's, you gotta be on social, you have to be on Instagram, Reels, TikTok. Like it, it's like very overwhelming and very like demanding in terms of like content. There's only so much time in a day to produce content and in a world that demands constant content from everyone it's a lot for brands to evaluate and even in in your shoes um as a writer like what what do you kind of think about so could you just talk to us a little bit about that evolution how what you're seeing from brands how are approaching it and how you approach it yourself yeah so just just to um clarify the question so just in terms of like what i've seen change in the space or how brands are adapting to the change well, let's do first, like just what the, the evolution looks like, right? In terms of the, the media, I guess, arm and the media industry, because at first it was uh, mm -hmm. it was just the, the journalistic stuff. And then we moved to more like blogosphere type of stuff. And now you've got a mix between blogs and social posts and reels and, you know, people, news outlets are like living on Instagram and like all mm -hmm. this sort of stuff. So maybe yeah. just kind of how you're seeing that evolution for from the writer side and the publication. Um, side of things and then we can get into the other stuff yeah what i think has been like a really interesting part of this shift is when when i was kind of first getting started and and these uh publishers were getting on social media and they were sharing their stories the whole goal of building those audiences on instagram and twitter was to direct traffic back to the site that was always the goal you know like the website was the main product you'd direct the stories there and what's shifted as as um, I guess the space has matured is each of those channels is now its own version of the media network. So instead of just posting something that's saying for this, for, to learn more, head to the website, you're recreating that story from start to finish on multiple different formats, which is why it feels so labor intensive now compared to what it was and why now there's no way an editor could create or a writer could create 10 stories a day because those 10 stories actually have to exist in four different formats to be able to be told to all of the audiences. And so it's definitely this space where you have to be an expert in all of these different channels. And I think really, really challenging, um, especially if you're an independent, uh, you're building an independent media business, which is what we're doing. So we're writing across the newsletter, the podcast, the Instagram, TikTok, and all of those different that so one story will live across all of those but it'll look completely different and take so much time yeah i mean we we know that intimately but i think it's it's so it's so true right you can't i mean you could just take content and repurpose it off these these different platforms but if you're not really tailoring it to the platform it's not going to have the same impact um because people come to instagram for different reasons and they come to tiktok and the and different reasons and they would come to like a website, right? If they just saw like an Instagram post on the website, they'd be like, okay, like, what is this? There's not like quite enough here. I need to know the story if you're like reading it on yep. your computer. Um, whereas when you see like, you know, it's almost like on Instagram, you've seen, it's just, you get like the, the, the image is the headline, right? And mm -hmm. then the, a lot of times they'll either tell the story in the caption or route you to, you know, like give you a, a teaser and then route you to the bio link to to follow along with the whole story. So it's just it's just, the mediums are just different, and you need to tailor each piece of content to the the specific medium so you can communicate what what it is you're trying to communicate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, and then moving forward, the next question was 
in the lens of all that um, stuff is going on, how should brands think about it, right? Because obviously you have, like for media, it's, it's your job to kind of come up with content. You're gonna be writing editorial. That's kind of like what you sign up for when you're in the media and content side of the game. But for brands, now it's almost like brands have to be playing the same playbook as well. So what, what have you kind of seen from some of the brands, some of the other founders that you've worked with, maybe even when you were talking about like growing brand out at Buff yourself, like how do you think about what are kind of best practices for a brand as, as, as it pertains to content strategy? This is such an interesting question because again, it's changed so much. I think that um, with short form video and TikTok, it has completely changed the game in that you used to be able to have uh, your product be kind of leading your content, whereas now you need a person. And I think that that puts founders of small consumer businesses in this really kind of like there's this tension of you also have to be the face of your business. And I think that female founders definitely have this tension like a little bit more than maybe others where there is this absolutely an opportunity to be fronting your TikTok and be telling that founder story, but then also that's taking away from other sides of your business and investing in UGC when it's short form video is really expensive. And so it does end up being, you know, if you're a smaller business, someone who's inside the company doing it. Um, but it's, it's, unavoidable now if you have a business that lives on the internet which is all of us you have a media business you you have to do this um and if you have a small company then you know if you're the founder you are an editor that that's your job yeah i think that's that's it's such a true point and it's I've, have you seen those memes where it's like it's like someone who's like super stressed out and they're like i have to be the content editor and the totally. like business person i've and made this those and memes have you <laughs> yeah i mean there, of course it's, it, it, it's 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 almost crazy for like for for founders they have so much to do it's hard enough to like run your own business yourself and then you have to have the lens to be on all these different platforms and create all this content but i think to to your point you're saying like that's just that's kind of the reality that we live in and you could choose to say oh like we don't care about content and we're going to do it our way but like that's probably not going to work because that's not the reality of the 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 situation that the the way the current market is made up yeah and i don't think that um brands necessarily have to play on every channel right like you can pick and choose where you want to thrive and that what makes sense for you um but you have to be somewhere yeah so maybe the the, the real takeaway is knowing that you have to be somewhere and it's more about figuring out what where uniquely your skill sets line up with like what's the best channel for your skill sets right maybe maybe it's reels maybe it's instagram maybe it's not maybe maybe you are a TikTok first brand and you should focus and double down on the channel that is like most authentic to you and your story yeah i also think there's a there's a business um do you know the business august it's a gen z period care company founded yes. by um nadia okamoto and what they do really well so she's built uh i think she's got three million followers on her own TikTok and maybe one million on the brand so They've been around for less than a year. So, you know, that's pretty great. And what they've really tapped into is the larger mission that's around their brand. So yes, she is showing the product a lot, but they've tapped into, I guess, a, a higher purpose, a higher vision and mission around the company that gives them these content opportunities and interesting things to say online. I think that particularly, um, you know, with Gen Z coming onto the scene and just the nature of video itself is that you if you're just pushing product, I think it is so transparent and it's so obvious that you need to 
you need to have something else that you're kind of standing for. Otherwise, it's really hard to thrive in these in these platforms. Yeah, especially when everyone else has a product and every email that a brand is sending to their people is like, hey, buy our product, buy our product, buy our product, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think that in when the market landscape is such that not everyone has access to being able to make products and like having a digital first brand, like that's really unique, right? Like there was a time, call it, you know, probably around the time you were starting the buff when by you just existing and having an online first brand, like that is unique, right? Like totally. you're, the, the consumer was used to like buying everything in the mall, in the store, and then, hey, you have this really cool brand and I can buy it online, that's unique. But now as that becomes commoditized, you need to stand out and there's all these other brands that are out there doing the same thing. And if you're just saying, hey, buy my product, buy my product, buy my product, you're not gonna be able to stand out in the current market landscape. Yeah, and you also used to be able to just kind of take a category and make it, you know, make it cool. And then all of a sudden you had a business, whereas now branding, you know, beautiful branding is is table stakes now. That's that's just expected. It's so easy for brands to do that it's like it's that's not a talking point. That's not interesting. Whereas four years ago even it was. Um so yeah, that's been a big shift as well. Yeah, that one's super fascinating. And it started like even in, in the DTC space you had, you know, the the Caspers and the Warby Parkers like way back in the day. And they're like, oh, let's take something that's really boring and like put some pretty branding on it and, um, you know, have a mission that we care about. And now we've got like this new category of brand, whereas now that's been pretty much done in every single consumable, every single uh, type of apparel. Like it's, you know, that's that's already done. And like you were saying, that's that's basically table stakes. And I think for you, it's probably a pretty interesting lens that you have because you saw the evolution of this space, right? It was probably your inbox full of all these different, hey, we have this beautifully new package brand. Hey, check this out, check this out, check this out. Um, and maybe being in the seat of the editor, you actually have a unique vantage point in terms of like, what is, what are the trends? What's on the cutting edge? Where are things moving? So um, what gets, as an editor these days, like what are some of the things that like get you excited where you're not like, Oh, I've heard about that a million times. Like, what are some of the different things that get you excited? Yeah, um, it, I, I'm definitely becoming like a little bit more, um, I think like discerning. I think that we're seeing now what was happening with like millennial aesthetics five years ago happening now with, with like a Gen Z branding aesthetic and um, approach to brand in a lot of categories. So beauty is a really big one. And this is what we're seeing a lot with um, the founders coming through our community. They are going into the same categories that have been already disrupted in the last five years. And they're speaking to a new customer and their brands are so different because this Gen Z are completely different to, um, I mean, I'm guessing you're a millennial like me, like that I don't get them. They're a different, totally different um, ball game. And they're coming in with um, these really maximalist, chaotic kind of, uh, brand aesthetics, the language is different. The, the, um, the way that the founders front the companies are totally different. They have these weird like characters instead of products. Like it is a, their approach to brand is just completely different. And I think that, you know, that is really interesting when you see new brands coming up with like that Gen Z aesthetic and that's what they're leaning towards. Like that probably catches my attention. Yeah, I think that's really uh, unique because it seems like the millennial sort of like their aesthetic and their vibe is like these clean, like really well curated brands that like the brand is everything's beautiful and everything's like perfect. 
And obviously, like if you're in the TikTok generation, everything's about being authentic and real and not like so perfect. Um, it's 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 a little bit to, for for me to digest every but once in a while. Thought, but like we thought as millennials on Instagram that we were that generation. You know what I mean? And it's just like the bar just keeps getting moved about what authenticity and transparency what it means. means now. Totally, like now you have to see everything. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and that's so what are some brands? Uh, I know you had mentioned August, but are there any other brands that come to mind when you think about being like really, um, you know, targeted towards Gen Z and uh, they do a really good job in terms of like how they've grown, what they're, you know, what they're selling and, and maybe that are totally different than what we're used to seeing? Oh my God, so many. Okay, so in beauty, there's a brand called Youthphoria. So not Euphoria like the show, youth as in young person. And the the founder ha, um, has developed basically a a product that just plays so well on TikTok. It's a, it's a face oil that's a blush and it changes color on your skin. So perfect for video. The branding is really, really out there. I think it's like getyouthphoria.com if you want to like check it out. Um, their whole focus is on TikTok, but they've also now got distribution, I think, through Sephora. So they've picked up some of those big retailers who are also looking to capture this customer as well. And they're definitely someone who's doing it really, really well. There's also a um, a new brand that actually hasn't launched yet. It's called Supple, but that I'm watching. And it's by two women who are, I'm, I'm going to say they're 23, 22. And they have uh, like a, a social media account that's called um, CMOS Girlies, which sounds incredibly random, but in the food and wellness space, they're like Gen Z's group and they're starting a supplement brand for Gen Z and they, their content is like these crazy chaotic memes, not like millennial memes where you can tell they're like clean. It's like a celebrity image with like a little caption. They're like these weird, messy Think about like what we used to see on the internet when we were first coming up in like high school. It's like that kind of aesthetic is back. And now they're moving into starting a supplement brand and it's called Supple. And so that's something that I'm really, really interested to watch because they've got that community first approach, which I think is super important for Gen Z customers. Yeah. And I, I mean, we've seen it as well on our pod. There's been a couple brands that have, uh, you know, blown up ex almost exclusively through sometimes through TikTok and they just go after a whole different generation. Like we had um, this one brand on um, Awful Cloth. They they blew up because like like Charlie D'Amelio and like all these big TikTokers started like wearing them and like, again, pretty like maximal, like really cool, colorful sort of brand. And then another one that was really fun was um, this one called Tabs, which is like the sex chocolate, but they had to blow up through TikTok because I think Instagram maybe banned them. And and then they like just took off um, through TikTok all organic and are absolutely killing it. But yeah, it's just really unique to sort of see uh, how different brands, how they do it. The branding's different, the communication's different. And like you're saying, the community's different. So that's the next thing I wanna kind of get into is community. What are you seeing from, uh, I mean, you have experience now building a community yourself. Um, and it seems like there's a lot of these brands that are growing out from community. So is there anything you could talk to about community in terms of like building community or best practices that you've seen from brands in terms of how they build community? Yeah. So I'm going to go back to August as an example. They have uh, a community on Geneva, which is like Gen Z Slack. Um, and 
it's called like the inner cycle or something and they do programming in that space. They have, yes, there's like some product conversation, but it is not product led. And that community is like self-moderated and self-run now. It's pretty, um, it's pretty big and like really active. And so they do it really, really well. And then I think just Geneva in general is like such an interesting platform to use. That's where we host our female founder world community and just the folks who are on there. It's, it's very, a very different like conversation style to a discord or a Facebook group. It's um, I think it's a really interesting space for a lot of brands to start kind of like forming their own communities, but not every consumer brand needs to start something like this. And I think that community can be such a buzzword and a lot of people are like, Oh, your Instagram, your Instagram account isn't your community, but I don't necessarily agree with that. You know, I think that if you have people who are watching your Instagram stories all the time, like they're seeing you as a trusted friend, like that is, that is a form of, of form of community for sure. Um, not everyone has to create like that private hub on Geneva or Circle or Discord or something because to do it well, it is a, a really, really heavy lift for sure. So you want to like have someone who's in there all the time running it. And I think another thing for community, like it's it's one of those things that you can't really force. It's like a lot of times it lends itself to different products or brands that are like naturally fit to community type of brands. So for example, we've had a couple on the show, like for example, um, this baby formula one called Bobby, they were just on um, their our latest show, but they were saying community has been a big flywheel for them. And it like makes sense, right? Like if you're a mother, you're probably asking all these questions. You want that input and you want to be able to not just communicate directly to the brand, like in an FAQ section, how should I feed my baby? But like actually talk to different people who are going through the same things as you. We've also seen it. Uh, we had um, Avi, they're like a collagen and a supplement sort of brand. And like for them, it was like Facebook in terms of growing community there. And again, if you're trying to, you know, if you care about your health and wellness routine, it's going to lean itself into community. Whereas maybe it's like, if you're, you know, if you're an apparel brand and you sell like, you know, hats, like, I, I don't know what the, if there's as much uh, room for community as some of these other sort of products. So I think it probably, it's about being authentic to yourself. And again, if you are one of those brands, it's probably about, okay, how do we continue? Like you were saying, how do we engage our customers and build really good customer experiences and like really not forget about anyone who's engaging with us and really make them feel a part of what we're building as opposed to saying, oh, you know, we're this apparel brand and we need to have all our customers talking to each other when there's no real clear direction for that. Yeah. I also think like if you're in a space where you need to build a lot of trust to actually like convert customers, then community makes sense. If you're in apparel, no one cares. I just want the cute dress. Like I don't, I don't care like necessarily whether you've got like programming and cool people for me to connect with. But if I'm buying a prenatal supplement, maybe I do care and I would like to be part of something that like helps me feel a little bit more trust for the brand. So I think that there's definitely, you know, for some brands it makes a lot more sense than others. And it's definitely not something that you should force if, if it's not there. Yeah, I think it's just all about knowing yourself, what you're about, because I think you'll you'll see you'll see community you'll see communities that start as communities and then become brands. You'll see brands that try to do community and either do it great or just don't do it. And like you're saying, it's a massive lift if you don't do it the right way. So it's all about knowing the direction that you want to go and be able to lean into that, and that should be able to direct you rather than trying to say, oh, community's hot right now, everyone's doing community, and just because I heard this you know, infant formula brand is doing it, I can do it too, being apparel, 
no, it's not necessarily going to translate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And now let's talk about building community the way you've been building community, right? You yeah. guys have built out um, Female Founder World. And how, how did you start? Uh, clearly, you obviously had some inspiration from being in the editorial space, having experience as an operator and wanting to kind of help support and share these messages and create this community. So like, how did you get started? What were the first steps? And what, when were you like, okay, this is something I want to be able to start building and working on? Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I built a bit of an Instagram following just through being in the editorial space and producing content all the time and going to fun events and sharing them and uh, while I was building the buff. And so naturally a lot of the people that I'd kind of like had along this journey with me were interested in entrepreneurship. They were interested in the story of the business that I was building. And when we were going through 2020 and shit was hitting the fan and things were getting really difficult, I was leaning so much on the founders in my community to, um, to really like give advice to figure out what they were doing. And it really drove home how important that network is. And it sounds like such a cliche because every founder, when I ask them for advice on the show, they're like, oh, build your network. But it is so important. And if you don't live in New York and maybe you didn't work as a fashion beauty editor for 10 years, maybe it's a little bit like harder to do. And so instead of just having these one-on-one -on -one calls, we I decided to um, put them on Zoom and open them up to my Instagram community so anyone could come along if they were having the same issues. That became a more structured workshop series where we're doing monthly workshops and tapping founders with certain expertise in our community. So we would have um, the founder of a beauty brand called Susto. She did a, a, something on how to invent a beauty product and another founder on how to build, how to do a partnership strategy and uh, a venture capitalist came on and walked through how to do your pitch deck and, and this kind of programming where it was free. It was very much just me at home losing my mind <laughs> during lockdown and um, trying to make something positive out of it. And that picked up really quickly. So um, turned it into a podcast and a newsletter and then opened up the, um, the community on Geneva, which is where we host all of our, our virtual workshops. And now we do in-person events as well. We do like really large kind of like panel events. We do these informal community hangs in our spaces around the world now. We've done them in New York. We've got LA coming up. We've got London. Um, so it's really just evolved from this. And again, it's evolved very organically. And that's such a hard thing. I always get frustrated when people say that because I'm like, yes, but like how? <laughs> how? How did it happen? But it was a very organic process and just that consistency of creating that content and that programming and really like creating with the community the kind of things that they wanted to learn and they wanted to know. Yeah, I think that is like what you said about like it happens organically is, is so important because a lot of times like you have skill sets, you're building, you're building different things. And then the next thing you know, those all those skill sets that you've built over time start to like overlap and stack on top of each other and you find yourself in a really good position to pursue anything, right? And I think in your case, in terms of building female founder world, it takes like building what you're building in terms of community, in terms of content, in terms of podcast newsletter, like, you know, this was one of my first forays into something like this. It's like, it, it, it's like the same thing as building a business. It's like doing it all over again. I'm like having flashbacks, but, um, and I think being able to understand where your strengths are and like 
you know, it's not something you have to stress out in the beginning being like, I'm going to do this, this, and that each, you have experiences and you let those experiences stack on top of each other. And then, you know, just keeping an open mind and, and like working hard, you're going to be able to find those things that really start to like resonate with you that you're start to realize you're like, Oh, wait a minute. I'm really good at this. There's growth here. There's like initial signs of product market fit, just like you would have in any other brand, right. Where people are like starting to say, Hey, this was really helpful. Hey, I really like that event you put on. Hey, you, you know, all these different things. And you see people engaging with each other and you're like, okay, wait a minute. There, there, there is something here. Right. So. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. I think, um, and also just, I haven't mentioned this before as well, but you know, while I was um, freelancing and building my consumer business, the buff, I was also consulting to UN women working in a very specific part of their private sector partnerships team where we were engaging marketing and media to be more inclusive and, and diverse in the way that they spoke to and represented women. And so it is very much this very specific overlap of everything that I've done before. And the other real, um, I guess, like signal to me to, to make to go into this full time and to focus on this was also from the brand side as well, the way that sponsors were reacting to the content that we we're creating in the community that we built, it just became really effortless to be able to monetize it and build out that pipeline of partners. It, it just, that was like a really big signal as well. Cause it's all, it's all well and good to build a community, but if it's not valuable to somebody who's going to, um, to sponsor it, then maybe it's not worth your time. Yeah, that's that's another important thing. It's not just about doing something just for the sake of doing it, but it's like, uh, how does it fit into, um, you know, how does it fill a need? It can be anyone's need, but in your case, you know, what you're really good at is building brand, building community, bringing people together. And there are plenty of like corporate brands who would dream to be able to do that and like don't have that sort of access. So what you've what you've created by building that community and that very specific knowledge is that arena for um, you know, there's a need for brands and other sponsors to be able to want to get involved because for them to take that on and do that themselves, they probably wouldn't know the first place to, to start a lot of the times. Right. Totally. And just, just in terms of the people that are in the community, you know, folks building consumer brands are a really valuable audience. If you're a, if you're a service provider or a tech platform in the Shopify ecosystem. So we have, um, you know, from that perspective, there's a lot of opportunity as well. And we've worked, you know, we've, we've had events with folks like Shopify, we've gorgeous is one of our sponsors. We've got another really great event coming up with Shopify in LA, which will be like this big two day event for consumer brand builders. Please come along if you're in LA, if, if you're on the West coast. And so, but yeah, being able to attract those really big partners because the, the community that we've built is so valuable to them. Like it has to have both sides to it. So as we wrap up here, Jasmine, where can where can a our listeners find you um, find more about female founders world? I know you mentioned you guys have a pod as well. Uh, why don't you mm -hmm. just shout out where where you guys are at? Yeah. Okay. So you can just search female founder world in the podcast app, wherever you listen, we're on Instagram at female founder world. Uh, and you can find me at Jasmine Garnsworthy on Instagram or come and figure out TikTok with me. I'm at Jazz Garnsworthy on TikTok. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the pod today and look forward to uh, seeing you guys continue to grow um, and, and wish you all the success as you continue to grow female founder world. Awesome. Thanks, Blaine.